From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The increasing cost of prescription drugs in the United States has become a source of concern for patients, physicians, and policymakers. On today's program, we'll get the perspective of one Mayo Clinic physician who has done extensive research on the topic. Also on the program, Precious Cargo, how medicines and specimens arrive at Mayo Clinic on a daily basis. Now that's not all. Radioactive material from around the world is flown into Rochester to prepare medications for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes, including targeted treatments for some forms of cancer. And we'll get an update on the measles outbreak. That's this week's program. Up next. Tracy, when it comes to health care costs, the increasing price of almost all prescription drugs in the U.S. is is a part of the problem. In 2018, for example, Americans spent $360 billion, that's with a B, on prescription medications. Now, that's over $1,000 for every man, woman, and child in the U.S. And while we might expect to pay more for new, innovative therapies, the truth is it's not just prices for new drugs and rare conditions that are skyrocketing. Pharmaceutical companies have raised prices sharply for commonly used medications to treat diabetes, high cholesterol, and asthma, just to name a few. So what's causing this problem, and what can we do about it? Well, we're about to find out, Tracy. Dr. Vincent Rajkumar is an internationally recognized researcher and has recently been diving into this important subject. He has published articles examining the origin of today's drug pricing challenges. And while these views represent his own perspective, Mayo Clinic is privileged to speak with him to discuss the complex considerations involved in this issue. Dr. Rajkumar, nice to have you on the program. Isn't it true, Dr. Rajkumar, that we pay more for prescription drugs in the United States than anywhere else in the world? Yes. Uh, First of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. Prices we pay sometimes are three, four times higher than what other developed countries pay for most common drugs. And why is that? Well, there are multiple factors, and uh, some of these are self-inflicted. We do have a vulnerable population, and patients are willing to pay anything to get better from serious illness, from cancer to diabetes. But, but isn't that true in other countries, too? Yes, it is true in other countries. So is the fact that there is monopoly protection. That is also true in other countries. Uh, but what we have here are certain unique factors that are not there in other countries. The cost of development is there in other countries. The patent protection is there in other countries. But what we have that they don't is in all other countries, when a new drug is approved, that's just the first step. The second step in most developed countries, in fact, all other developed countries besides the U.S., is there is a negotiation on price. What is the launch price going to be? Mm -hmm. And that is based on value. So if the drug prolongs overall survival by one year, they may be willing to pay three times GDP. But if the drug prolongs life only by one week or two weeks, then you cannot ask for that kind of price. In the U.S., there is no second organization or body that plays the role of setting the price after a drug's approved so that the prices are basically whatever the manufacturer chooses it to be. Tom and I have both watched the speech that you gave. Um, We'll have the video available for folks to, to go and download it. So tell us the four reasons that the pharmaceutical companies say drug prices are so high. 
Pharma usually says that drug prices are very high because it costs a lot to develop a new drug. The drug price reflects the value that the new drug provides. That market forces will decide the cost of the drug and the price is what the market will bear. And any attempts to lower the cost will stifle innovation. And Those are all false. Those are Pretty all much. false. Yep. They're all, those are all false because you cannot explain the rise of insulin prices as the cost of drug development. The most commonly used analog insulins were patented in the 2000s. And then 20 years later, the price has gone from $30 a vial to $300 a vial for the exact same insulin. There was no innovation in this, not an improved product. It's the same product that the price has gone up. And then other studies show that the cost of development is not exactly $1 billion as or $2 billion as the pharmaceutical industry will want us to believe. So how is it that they're able to keep raising the price every year on an old drug that's off patent? Yeah, let's talk about that insulin example that you just referred to. There are some unique factors, like I said, that are that price. So the launch price of a product, we don't have an agency to set that. So the price is very high to start with. But for old drugs, um, that we also prevent Medicare from negotiating. So the largest purchaser of drug products is forced to buy and provide the citizens with this benefit, but at the same time is prevented by law from negotiating for the best deal. So what happens is the price will go up without anyone able to negotiate for a better deal or a lower price. The other reason why this goes up is we have a system of middlemen where everybody in the supply chain benefits from the higher price. The person who's supposed to get you the best deal, the pharmacy benefit managers. The PBMs. The PBMs. They make a percent of the list price. So the higher the list price, the better off they are from a profit standpoint. And so those benefits or those profits that they make are not passed on to the customer. They are retained by the PBMs. And there are only three PBMs in the U.S. that control close to 90% of the market. There are three wholesalers who control about 90% of the market. So the high list price helps the pharmaceutical company. A percent of that helps the wholesaler, the pharmacy benefit managers, the pharmacies, everyone except the patient. So if you lower the list price, you risk going off the formulary because you will provide a lesser profit for the PBM than a higher price drug. This causes what I referred to in the talk as erectile pricing. You know, when you have Viagra and Cialis and Levitra, the price didn't go down due to competition. It kept going up because the higher the price, the more for everybody in the supply chain. I think you mentioned that Viagra, when it first came out, was about $7 a tablet and now it's 60 Yes. Okay. How did it ever happen? that when Medicare came along, that they made it so that uh, we could not negotiate drug prices. How did it ever happen? Well, I don't know the political situation at the time, but obviously at a time when we were trying to cut down Medicare spending and costs, here was a proposal in 2003 through the Medicare Modernization Act to provide citizens with an additional benefit, which is prescription drug coverage. That was not available before, but the whole Part D program was a vast expansion of benefits to the citizens. In order to do that, what was extracted was that you can do that, provided you don't negotiate with pharmaceutical companies 
on the price of the drugs that Medicare will pay to get. It must have been the drug lobby. It is the pharmaceutical lobby because the person who championed this effort and put it through Congress went on to become the president of the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association within a few months. What about generics, though? This is what it's always been. Oh, sure, there's the name brand, but you could get generics. So and why aren't there more? And yeah. why aren't they at low cost? Well, there are two things. Why aren't there enough generics? Well, because we do have regulatory burdens. Uh, many generic manufacturers shy away from the U.S. because of the enormous amount of paperwork and data that they require to submit to the FDA to get on the market. Generics, when they enter the market, they also have to be careful about how high they price the drug because a very low price means less profit for the pharmacy benefit managers. So they they do price them higher. A lot of generic companies are also owned by big pharma. So what we need really is a more easy path for generics to enter the market and also some non-profit generic manufacturers who are in it not to make a profit, but these drugs actually cost very small amounts of money to develop. And if you're really looking for Tylenol prices on expensive drugs, you need nonprofits whose motive is simply we're going to give the lowest cost drugs for our patients and we don't want to profit from it. I'm very encouraged that Mayo Clinic and Intermountain Healthcare and the Arnold Foundation and others have joined together to form Civica Rx, which in the long term wants to actually manufacture some of the most commonly used generic medications at very low cost. It was interesting in the speech that you gave, people don't want to talk about it. And even if in that exam room, the patient will ask the physician about drug prices, that the physician even then doesn't want to talk about it because of the way the whole thing is set up. Yes, we are under time constraints. So we are not able to address the cost concerns with the patient or talk about affordability. Many physicians are also not aware of the resources available on finding out how much a drug actually costs. So I've had to educate people on GoodRx.com or Blink Health to get an idea at least of the drug prices. Physicians are also not familiar with how Part D operates or just because a patient has Medicare or insurance, you know, what is a deductible, what is a copay, what is a coinsurance. These are all different things that physicians are not fully aware of. To be able to discuss in an intelligent manner with the patient, how can they get the lowest priced drug, uh, whether it's lowest copay or lowest out-of-pocket for that particular drug? So this is something that is important. When I spoke to the mother of the young man who died rationing his insulin, Alex Smith, his mother, Nicole Smith, told me the two things you want to tell physicians is to talk to patients about affordability and advocate for low prices. All right, give us those two websites once more, Dr. Rajkumar. The two websites I mentioned are goodrx.com and blinkhealth.com. And you can go on there and you can find out what the actual cost of the drug is and where you can get it the cheapest. Yes, and in fact, Consumer Reports, Lisa Gill did a whole article on this where she found for the most common five drugs like Lipitor, Plavix, you can get those five drugs, a month supply, for $66 at Health Warehouse, $100 at Costco, or you could pay $928 at CVS Target. And it varies from drug to drug, week to week, month to month. So, you you know, one day it might be cheaper at one place, but in another day it might be cheaper elsewhere. So this is something, again, physicians, unless they are in the habit uh, of checking, particularly for the patients who are paying 
out-of-pocket or cash for the drugs, which tend to be underinsured, uninsured immigrants, those kind of people, or patients with a high co-pays or co-insurance where it's a percent of the cost of the drug that they're going to have to pay, then we need to be able to tell them uh, where to go for the best deal. We're talking about prescription drugs and how much they cost in the United States with Dr. Vincent Raj Kumar. We've talked about the exorbitant cost of prescription drugs, why that is, and now what we can potentially do about it as as a country, as an individual, and as physicians. Well, at the federal and state policy levels, there are several things that we can do. A few years ago, I was not hopeful. Uh, Now I'm very hopeful because uh, many of these solutions are being discussed bipartisan way in both the Senate and the Congress of the U.S. uh, government. Number one, value-based pricing. Uh, Value-based pricing is adopted by most countries. What pharma defines as value-based pricing is very different than what value-based pricing actually is. Value-based pricing simply means that at the time of the launch of a new drug, there is a negotiation or on the ceiling, the highest price that the drug can be sold at. That is proportional to how much extra benefit this new drug provides. So if the new drug provides uh, one year of extra survival, there is a ceiling on how much it can cost. And so we need to set up an agency which looks at exactly what the magnitude of value it provides and set a ceiling on the price. There is an institute called the ICER, uh, which is now doing this job, and those recommendations can be taken into effect. And there's some precedent that some companies are willing to back off on the price, like Amgen did, I think, on the price of one of the lipid-lowering drugs. Second thing we should do is Medicare should be able to directly negotiate for price. Since for sure. I feel like I should have a horn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's important because Medicare, after the first $5,100 of prescription drug costs, for many drugs, this can be used up in the first two weeks of, of the year. By February, Medicare is actually paying 80% of the cost of all party drugs Uh, not the insurer. The insurer pays only 15%. The patient pays 5%. So the biggest purchaser should be able to directly negotiate with companies. The third thing that we can do is to facilitate easy entry of generics and biosimilars into the market. Some of it requires changes at the FDA regulatory level in terms of how much data they need for bringing a new generic or biosimilar in. Some of it, we can be very creative. We can have reciprocal approval, just like You and I can go to different countries because they allow you to travel visa-free, so we allow them to travel visa-free. So if we have a reciprocal arrangement with, say, Germany or Switzerland, that drugs that are FDA-approved, that is the generic available in Germany or Switzerland, we'll give reciprocal approval, and you do the same for drugs that go through our process. It'll speed up the arrival of generics because companies wouldn't have to do this two or three times every single country. Non-profit generic manufacturers should be encouraged. Civic Rx is one example, but more of them, including proposals like maybe for insulin, which is so critical and used by 30 million people in the U.S., that the U.S. government itself can manufacture it, and it will solve a lot of the problems with price because when it was sold at $20, uh, Novo Nordisk, Sanofi, and Eli Lilly were still making money. But why price it at 275 to $300 a vial? It's not that expensive to make. And then we need to eliminate this incentive that physicians have to prescribe the most expensive option. Right now, if there are two drugs, one priced at $60 and one priced at 2000 the 
physicians can make 6% of the cost of that drug, patient doesn't know that you could actually make a take-home more by giving the most expensive option. This has been seen with Zomeda and Denosumab, with uh, Avastin and Lucentis for the glaucoma treatments. A $2,000 drug gives 6% of 2000 to take back. A $60 gives only 6% of $60. So, so these are drugs that are given in the office. They are given in the office. And we need to remove the incentive to prescribe the most expensive option. And rather, we can give a high fixed amount. Every time you get a physician-administered drug, we give you a flat rate, whichever the drug is. So take away the incentive, but set the fixed level at a level reasonable enough so physicians don't run into a loss. And we need to have some transparency about the negotiations pharmaceutical companies have with PBMs. Right now, what happens and how the prices are set and how much rebate is going to the PBM and how much is retained, how much is passed on to the consumer, nothing is transparent. And absent that, we have no idea on whether they are acting in your best interest, how much are they keeping, what what role they are playing in the rising costs. So PBM transparency or ending rebates or rebates passed on to customers or rebates that serve the real purpose, which is to negotiate the best deal, uh, something like that around. So that, that whole middleman reform needs to needs to happen. And then finally, I think we as physicians should speak out more. Right now, there are no allies. Physicians, as, as I told you, have very little time, and they also have a financial incentive to give the most expensive drug. So they're not out there. Yeah. Uh, professional and patient organizations get a large amount of their funding from pharmaceutical companies, so they are not there. PBMs, they get better profits with higher list prices. They are not there. Even patients can be silenced by copay assistance programs, which take away the out-of-pocket so they don't know the cost of the system. So we need allies and physicians can be at the front lines of this. We've been discussing the high cost of prescription drugs and potential solutions with Mayo Clinic hematologist, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar. Dr. Rajkumar, thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll find out how important deliveries of medications and specimens arrive every day at Mayo Clinic. And later, a measles update from a Mayo Clinic expert. Every day, almost 40,000 specimens flow into Rochester, Minnesota for delivery to the Mayo Clinic laboratories. 40,000 specimens come from more than 4,000 clients in more than 70 different countries. Now, that's not all. Radioactive material from around the world is flown into Rochester to prepare medications for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes, including targeted treatments for some forms of cancer. And there are packages labeled Donated Human Tissue for Transplant. Somebody's waiting for that. There's a story to be told <laughs> here. In a community known worldwide for hope and healing, the cargo delivered to Rochester, Minnesota, every day plays a vital role in ensuring patients receive timely diagnostic results and life-saving treatments. And joining us in studio to tell us more about the process and the logistics involved is Dr. Andrew Paulson, supervisor of the Nuclear Medicine Radiopharmaceutical Lab at Mayo Clinic, and Tom Griffin, Global Logistics Manager for Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Welcome to you both. 
Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for uh, being here. So, Tom, let's start with you. You must have a pretty big team of individuals who are there to help make all this happen, 40,000 specimens a day. Well, it is a pretty big operation. Uh, within Mayo Clinic Laboratories, the areas that I work with are everything to get a specimen here, so packaging, logistics, courier service. We have 70 uh, Mayo FTE who are working on those projects, and then contractors and a network outside that's a couple hundred drivers will be on the street today across the country, and then, of course, FedEx, UPS, Delta, all the other flights that are out there. Mayo has 70 people working full-time doing this, handling these specimens and getting to them to where they need to go. Specifically moving specimens to here and then back to clients. Uh, yes, we have four different departments that work in various areas there. And why are so many specimens sent to Mayo Clinic? Well, really, it's the same reason that so many patients come to Mayo. Uh, within the Department of Lab Medicine and Pathology, the same lab performs testing for Mayo Clinic patients, and they perform testing for external clients and their patients. So the same values, the same excellence in teamwork that apply to a Mayo Clinic patient really make a pretty strong service offering when you take it out and offer it to the market worldwide. Are these specialized uh, tests, uh, and do hospitals find that it's uh, less expensive to send their specimens to Mayo and have them evaluated rather than doing it in-house? Actually, um, Mayo presents the laboratory to clients in a little different way than a commercial lab would. We would rather they do most of the testing locally, as close to the patient as possible. So no one sends a lipid panel here. But the esoteric testing, the genetics... Those sorts of things, uh, mass spectrometry that might not make sense for the local hospital to run, uh, they send that here, and we marry it up with all the testing from within the clinic, and we wind up with about 24 million tests a year. On the rare occasion that a Minnesota winter day is inhospitable to your job, I mean, it doesn't really happen <laughs> that often. <laughs> uh, what do you do? What, I mean, does everybody just get the day off, or what happens? No, there are no days off. <laughs> uh, the, really, the worst thing that can happen to us is fog out at mm. uh, the Rochester International Airport sure. uh, because that will divert flights to Minneapolis, and it puts us two or three hours behind. Mm. And the whole game is to get uh, the testing in the door and through our process into the lab by noon uh, with the intent that then the result can go out today. So when we have fog out at Rochester, uh, it's, it's a pretty traumatic experience for our operation. What percent of, of your specimens actually come in to the airport by air? Well, about 90% come in by air, either through Minneapolis or Rochester. So about 75% of the total come in just through Rochester International Airport. All right, Dr. Paulson, tell us about your work. You are supervisor of the Nuclear Medicine Radio Pharmaceutical Lab. Tell yep. us what that means. It's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and Tracy said it so well. <laughs> I had to practice a few times. <laughs> so... Um, our lab is responsible for preparing medications that uh, contain radioactivity, and we use those medications and administer them to our patients, and with that, we're able to perform various diagnostic studies and uh, treat specific types of cancer. And uh, why is it that you don't make these radioactive materials on campus here in Rochester? Why, why do they have to come from, from so far? Sure. Um, in our nuclear medicine practice, we do have the capability of uh, producing some of our radioactive material that is then turned into medication. Uh, but a very large part of our practice is, relies on us to acquire the radioactive, the radioactivity from uh, vendors um, outside of Mayo Clinic. 
Um, and one reason is because it would be very costly to produce our own radioactivity for everything we needed. Um, some of our radioactivity actually is created in a nuclear reactor halfway across the world um, and re- is the result of splitting the atom. So I know Mayo Clinic is big, but we don't have a nuclear reactor. Yes. <laughs> halfway across the world, like where? Um, one of our main reactors that produces a lot of our medical radioactivity is in the Netherlands, I believe. And some of it comes from Canada as well. And it is a fragile network of uh, nuclear reactors and these things called cyclotrons that produce a lot of the radioactivity that's used in medicine. And it is sprinkled across the world. The, the supply chain is incredibly fragile. Um, and we do rely on very timely delivery of the radioactive material in order to um, provide care to patients. And how do they package this so that there's no harm to the handlers? Yeah, so it's heavily regulated. And the packaging, a lot of our medications come in liquid form, and it's simply the radioactivity is in a glass vial, and that goes into a special package which has some thick, dense shielding around. A lot of times it's lead or tungsten. So there are very specific ways to package this, and all the packages are monitored for how much energy is being emitted from the package, and um, they're being tested to make sure there's no contaminants on the outside of the package. You mentioned that a, a fair amount of this radioactive material is used for diagnostic purposes. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? What, what would that be? The radioactive material ultimately is made into a pharmaceutical-grade product, which can be administered to patients. And the type of radioactivity used for diagnostic images, when the radioactive atom decays, it emits a form of energy much like an X-ray. It's electromagnetic energy. Um, which can escape the patient's body, and then we can detect that with specialized cameras. So in a sense, we can administer diagnostic radiopharmaceuticals and watch what the body does to that drug. So we can see how the drug is absorbed, distributed, metabolized, or eliminated from the body. And you indicated of all these specimens that you uh, that come into the airport and all the different ways they come in, you try to get them to the lab by noon so that whoever sent them to you will get a result that afternoon. That's the intent, right? Somebody can get a result today, and somewhere out there there's somebody that will get to go home today that otherwise would be waiting for a result. Pretty incredible process. Amazing. Rochester, Minnesota, a cargo hub for some 40,000 medical specimens arriving from all over the world every day. Dr. Paulson, Mr. Tom Griffin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank thanks you. for having me. Measles cases in the U.S. have surpassed the highest number on record since the disease was declared eliminated in the year 2000. Eliminated means that it's gone. Eradicated. Okay, just wanted to be sure. We thought so. Now, to date, over 700 measles cases have been reported in 22 states. Here to tell us how this has happened and why is infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Poland. Eliminated? Eliminated? You would have thought so. And we were were headed that way. But, Tom, you're exactly right. Over 700 cases. This is more cases than we have seen in the last 25 years. One out of 20 kids that get this disease are going to get pneumonia. One to three out of a thousand that get it are going to die as a result of it. I've gotten questions from physicians that are seeing women, pregnant women who have been exposed to measles. Why is this happening? In a word, unimmunized people. They're just rejecting the vaccine based on false information that lingers out there on the Internet. 
When did that start? Uh, when did this misinformation start to come onto the Internet? Yeah, it really started about 1998, I think it is, when Andrew Wakefield published an article, which has now been retracted. The British Medical Journal? was It, that it was the, in the Lancet. Lancet. Uh, he was stripped of his medical license because he fraudulently published these these misleading and wrong data that he uh, drew conclusions from that have dearly cost people's lives. Uh, the, the outbreak so far in the U.S. has been estimated to cost somewhere around $35 million, and it's not over yet. Is he the one that wrote the article that suggested that vaccines could cause autism? Correct. And then it was later retracted. It's, it was later retracted. There have been some 20 studies over two decades in multiple countries, every single study showing it just isn't true. There has to be something about the conspiracy angle of it. I mean, the psychology of it is the conspiracy angle, and that that is taking hold in certain populations more yeah. than others. Yeah. It, it tends to be, you're exactly right, Tracy, it tends to be in populations that are more insulated and less well-educated, and then ironically, in the insulated, well-educated communities. There's an island off the state of Washington, for example, that has among the lowest immunization rates, and the average educational level there is a master's degree. Herd immunity on that island must not be very strong. It's not present. (laughs) So tell us what is meant by herd immunity. So herd immunity means that if all of us get the vaccine, then those of us who don't respond or for some reason can't get the vaccine are likely to still be protected because everybody around us is immune. Now, you said who can't get the vaccine. Who can't get the vaccine? So the MMR vaccine is what we're talking about. Measles, mumps, rubella. Right. People who are immunocompromised or who are pregnant can't get that vaccine. All right. What about people who don't want to get a big for religious reasons? Yeah. So there are there are groups like that. Uh, there's actually no prohibition in the Bible <laughs> against anything like that. But you know, different religions have their their different beliefs beliefs, and they have sometimes been a cause of that. Let me let me dispel one myth. Uh, a large number of the measles cases in New York are happening in Orthodox Jewish communities. Those uh, communities tend to be less well-educated, ed- surprisingly. They don't uh, let their children get educated to v- very far into the system. But the rabbis have told them there is no prohibition against getting vaccines. Indeed, they've encouraged them to get vaccines. But when you're an insular, less well-educated community, it's word of mouth, misinformation, fears, emotions that tend to make the, the, the decisions. And then, you know, we have to admit we live in a culture where uh, an increasing number of people don't believe that science is a way of knowing and they reject it. Yeah, interesting. So the uh, World Health Organization has named hesitancy on the part of, of parents one of the top 10 global, the hesitancy on a part of parents to get their kids vaccinated, right. one of the top 10 global health threats. Exactly right. And they did that as not, not only warranted by the data, but to send a signal that these diseases, which, as we pointed out at the top of this, had been eliminated, moving toward eradication. Measles is eradicable. We could eradicate measles like we did smallpox, and this would never be a problem on earth again. But we haven't done that and they're sending the signal that this is a global health threat by denying vaccines and rejecting getting them. 
When did the MMR become available? How long has this vaccine been around? So uh, what we should say is that at first it came out as the individual components mm-hmm. going back to 68. And then they put the three components together. I think it was in the late 70s. Okay. And so many of the diseases that you come in to talk to us about yeah. are changing, continually yeah. changing. So the measles, does th- that virus? Yeah, that- measles is considered a monotypic virus. So while it has some changes with it, it's not like influenza. It doesn't escape being controlled by the vaccine, unlike influenza. Because of the measles outbreak, are there people in the U.S. today who should go ahead and and get the measles vaccine or at least get a booster if they hadn't haven't yeah. had both shots? So let me be kind of blunt here, Tom. Um, because of the risk, the medical risks of getting this vaccine, I my personal opinion is one would be foolish to not be protected against this disease. You travel to any major city. We have outbreaks now in 22 states right now in the U.S. So are you likely to get exposed? Yeah, there's a quantifiable risk. Depending on where you live, there's a high risk. They're trying to do things like quarantine colleges and tell unimmunized people not to go to work, et cetera. That's not going to work very well. This outbreak is going to continue to spread. So if you've not been immunized, you need to be immunized. If you only got one dose of vaccine, you need a second dose of vaccine. If you were born before 1957, like two of us here, <laughs> you and Tracy, huh? Then you, <laughs> then you probably, then you don't need a vaccine. You had the disease. So I know I had the disease as a kid. I have lifelong immunity from that. But it is it is highly contagious, isn't it? It is, in fact, the most contagious human virus we know of. Is that right? Yeah. So if if we were susceptible and somebody with active measles had come into this room eight hours earlier, we would get the disease. That's how contagious. Eight hours. Because it just lingers in the air. Yes. You don't even have to touch something. It's Correct. just in the air. Correct. All right, let's dispel some myths about the measles virus. You've done, you've dispelled a fair number of them already. Um, there are natural ways to prevent the measles, so I don't need the vaccine. Couldn't be more wrong. There is no natural way to prevent measles. Uh, this one we touched on, the measles vaccine causes autism? No evidence for that whatsoever. You don't need to get a booster shot if you've already received the measles vaccine. That's not true. So, in other words, if you've only gotten one dose, you need a second dose. What about kids that were born after 1957? So they are the people. (laughs) Do you have any interest in this? (laughs) Slight, (laughs) slight interest. So those individuals should get two doses of vaccine. Okay. You can get the measles multiple times, even if you've already had it. No. Uh, unlike chicken pox or influenza or uh, some of those sorts of diseases, once you've had measles, you're immune to measles. All right. Getting the vaccine ensures I won't get the measles. Partially right. <laughs> <laughs> yes so and no. When, we get, when you get one dose of vaccine, somewhere about 90 to 93 plus percent of people are immune and are immune for the most part for life. And you get that second dose of vaccine, you get that level of immunity up to somewhere in the 95, 97%. I wanted to ask you one other thing, uh, a couple of things. Uh, The government can force you to get vaccinated. 
There's actually a ruling where they can do that. In the interest of the public health, they can require you to be immunized. No kidding. Yeah. And is there? And, and what if you don't? Is there a potential fine? Well, let, let me say that the last time we had a measles outbreak, there was a judge in Philadelphia that ordered a nurse and policeman to go to a home and immunize, uh, I think it was two children. Wow. All right. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about. The CDC said that the current outbreak started through importation. Yes. That's an, important, that. that's an important part. So we don't have... Uh, indigenous circulating measles virus in the U.S. That's what the elimination means. What what has happened over time is we've developed larger and larger pools of susceptible people. That's why these often uh, these outbreaks are occurring in larger cities for the most part. Then what happens is somebody from the U.S. goes to a country where they're having very large numbers of outbreaks, or somebody from that country comes to the U.S interacts with somebody from these susceptible pools, and it's like throwing a match on gasoline, and that's what's happening. Do you think that this is going to become the norm now, that we're going to see measles cases every year? I think so. I I really do think so until we no longer have susceptibles. That's the way measles works. Do we know any reports of any deaths resulting? I don't think thus far there have been any uh, deaths. But not this year, but it, measles can. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like about one to three people per thousand that get infected. So we haven't had a thousand cases yet, so it's not surprising we might not have seen a, a, a death. But if you're a pregnant woman and you get infected, it's likely, uh, you have, you, let me put it this way, you have a high risk of losing your baby. That's uh, a death. Wow. And it could cause blindness. And too, cause can blindness. It? It I mean, can this cause is not a benign disease. Encephalitis. What do you mean by encephalitis? So literally, they can develop uh, mental status changes, convulsions, deafness. Those are permanent. And then there's a disease called SSPE. This is a chronic, long-term, untreatable disease where you basically become demented as a result of having had measles infection. So, if, for your children, when should they get vaccinated? Well. Normally, they get their first dose at 12 months. In these areas that are having outbreaks, because of the concern, they're recommending they get it at six months, a second dose at 12 months, and a third dose at school entry. All right. There's absolutely no reason not to have your children vaccinated. None at all. All right, measles was declared eliminated, eradicated from the United States in the year 2000, but it has now certainly made a resurgence. So far this year, over 700 cases reported in the U.S., 22 different states. Most of the cases are in people who have not been vaccinated, correct? Correct, the vast majority. And the World Health Organization says the reluctance on the part of some parents to have their children vaccinated is one of the top 10 health threats worldwide. I'm sure you would agree. Absolutely. Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease specialist and, by the way, editor of the journal Vaccine. You probably didn't know that. I did not. (laughs) Thanks for being with us, Dr. Poland. My pleasure. That's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org.
Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.